Welcome to Good Patron, a production of UTR Media. I am your host, Garrett Godfrey, and on this show, I explore what it means to be a good patron, asking how each of us can be a good patron of the bands and musicians we appreciate. I'm glad you're here because I have an interview to share with you about an upcoming book I am really excited about. This is episode 64 for January of 2024. And it's a bit unusual because I'm only talking about one pre-order. Normally, we don't even have an episode in January because, well, frankly, UTR Media has a lot going on this month. But I wanted to make sure you all knew about this pre-order before the book came out. This book is God Gave Rock and Roll to You, A History of Contemporary Christian Music. And it's published by Oxford University Press. The author is Dr. Leah Payne. Dr. Payne is an associate professor of American religious history at Portland Seminary and a 2023-2024 public fellow at the Public Religion Research Institute. She holds a PhD from Vanderbilt University and her research explores the intersection of religion, politics, and popular culture. Payne is the author of God Gave Rock and Roll to You, but she's also the co-host of Rock That Doesn't Roll, a PRX podcast about Christian rock and its listeners, and the podcast Weird Religion, a religion and pop culture podcast. Her writing and research has appeared in the Washington Post, NBC News, Religion News Service, and Christianity Today. And I had the privilege of speaking to Dr. Payne about this new book. Stick around until the end because I've got a couple other updates for you after the interview as well. Enjoy. Uh, Let me just start by saying I really appreciate your time. Right up front, um, where can people follow you and where can they pre-order the book? So we get that like right up front. Oh, wonderful. Yes. People can follow me on social media. Most um, social media platforms at drleahpain.com, drleahpain.com, D-R-L-E-A-H-P-A-Y-N-E. And yeah, and I I co-host two podcasts. One is called Weird Religion, which is a podcast about religion and pop culture that I co-host with um, a longtime friend and colleague who's a Bible scholar, Brian Doak. And then um, my uh, another one, which listeners of uh, to your podcast might be interested in, is um, called Rock That Doesn't Roll. And it's the story of Christian rock told through in-depth stories from the uh, fans of Christian rock. And um, I co-host that one with Andrew Gill, and it's a PRX podcast. And we try to really engage with people who've had a wide variety of experiences um, with Christian rock. And it's just, it's it's really fun to hear their stories. It feels like a privilege. And where can folks pre-order your new book? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think it's available most places where... Um, books are sold. So I'd encourage people to check out if there's an indie bookstore around, um, check out your local bookstore. Uh, But it's also available at Oxford University Press on their site. And of course, um, Amazon, if you are an (laughs) Amazon um, buyer. But yes, I think I was really excited. I saw that it was available at Powell's Bookstore, which um, is an iconic store here in the Portland area. So um, I, I hope that um, anybody who's interested could find it in their, at their local bookstore. I was at Powell's last Friday. Oh, before I went to the airport, I swung by Powell's. Yep. Oh, good. Uh, That's like a. I love that store. Did you have a good time there? I did. Well, it was it was closed Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and it didn't even open Friday until noon because of the weather. But oh my I goodness. was I was determined to to get in there before I was gone. So yeah, I left I left with a, a good handful of books, but so. Tell us who you are um, these days, like what are you doing, and the overarching themes you're covering in your new book. It's God Gave Rock and Roll to You, 
Um, but yes. tell us kind of what, what you're talking about. Sure. Um, I am a religion scholar. I'm a historian of American Christianity. And um, I, I am interested in contemporary Christian music as a serious form of um, theological and cultural and political formation. Um, oftentimes, contemporary Christian music is dismissed by by fans of the music and by um, outsiders as being um, a sometimes, you know, by by critics as being silly or um, not serious in some kind of way. Um, and then some people who have enjoyed contemporary Christian music see it primarily as entertainment. And so they wouldn't necessarily put it as um, a form of doing theology. But I think that it is very serious. Um, silly things can actually be serious. And um, doing contemporary or looking at contemporary Christian music as um, a really important uh, way that people uh, found their identity as a, as the person as a Christian um, and um, the music as I, I, I want to look at the music as um, a really powerful influence in people's lives. And so the book is um, about a hundred year history of um, the business of contemporary Christian music, um, how it formed and how looking at the business can tell us about the power of contemporary Christian music. Um, and it's been quite a journey, very fun to write. <laughs> It's it's academic and scholarly. I mean, it's it's put out by Oxford University Press, so it's going to be. Um, it's not like the insider cheerleading of the Jesus music film. Uh, yeah. You you connect some dots that are kind of hard to see, mm. like the the connection with uh, American premillennial dispensationalism. And as yeah. I'm reading your book, I'm I'm side by side reading the rise and fall of dispensationalism and seeing a lot of the stuff he pulled in about. Uh, part of how that theology moved across the U.S. was very much through the the songs that were led, and that kind of broke down divisions between denominations because it's just a song, and all these ideas kind of like spread like wildfire. And I'm reading that while I'm reading what you talk about, and then you talk about um, some of the racist segregationist roots in the American South and mm -hmm. um, American exceptionalism and Christian nationalism. And those aren't always easy to see in something that I, like I grew up loving Christian music. And, um, you know, I'm one of those kids that in the eighties, like got Petra More Power To You as my first Christian awesome. record and kind of <laughs> gave up my early stuff. And um, it was it was very much identity forming. And it was only later as an adult, I'm looking back at some of those things and going, you know, some of this was really good and some of it was hard to see, but you've like, you've got all the receipts. I mean, you've got all the, the citations and, um, but how, I mean, that's, I've got to think that that kind of a project requires a, a lot of passion, but like you weren't raised on CCM. You were more of a Jesus music listener because yeah. your dad, tell us about your dad's opinion of CCM <laughs> and, and what kind of brought in the passion for this then, if it wasn't like a, a nostalgia thing for you. Thank you so much. That's a great question. And I really appreciate you um, noting that that this book covers a lot of the same territory as as the rise and fall of um, 
uh, premillennial dispensationalism because I, I think it does too. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. But um, yeah, so my dad was um, a, a Pentecostal pastor um, on the West Coast. My parents became a part of the charismatic Pentecostal movement um, in the 1970s. Um, at, in San Jose, California. So right around like that's, if you know anything about the Jesus movement, you know, that that was the place to be. Yeah. And so I was really, you know, the, the music that fueled their, um, conversion. My dad was raised, um, a Latter-day Saint, and then his family stopped engaging with the church. And so he was kind of just, um, he would have been a nun, uh, yeah. before. He, he became a Christian, and then my mom was raised in the Christian church, but eventually both of them um, came into the, the charismatic movement, and um, the music of their entry into that world and really um, their lifelong passion for ministry and God was Jesus music. So um, the music of Keith Green and Second Chapter of Acts and Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill and Honey Tree and all of that kind of stuff, that was um, very formational for them. And Daniel Amos, my dad was a big Daniel Amos fan. Um, so that that music was um, the, the kind of Christian music in our home. But my dad, for whatever reason, He's a big jazz fan. His big his band favorite band growing up was um Little Feet. And uh and so he just thought that contemporary Christian music was not high quality music. Um and so he didn't want it in our home. So I a lot of my peers were raised with um and I think for many consumers of contemporary Christian music, they were raised with it as a form of entertainment that was meant to be spiritually enriching, but also protect you from the mainstream world. Um, and many, I write about this in the introduction, most of my friends were raised like that, um, you know, just growing up in that kind of church. Um, but for whatever reason, my dad just got kind of stubborn about that. <laughs> and so, um, so I wasn't, but I could obviously see it. Um, and, and one of the things that I talk about in the book is that also to engage with contemporary Christian music fully in terms of, you know, participating in all the many ways that you could participate in it, you needed to have a certain income level and my, my household didn't have it. So, you know, the cost of going to Christian festivals and, and concerts and buying merchandise and stuff, um, it just wasn't a part of my life, but I could definitely see its power and, um, and appreciate its power. I mean, it, it, it was, I think when I first started, um, when I first tried to pitch this book as um, as an academic book, there were a couple of editors who didn't really recognize. I think they thought it was just silly, you know. Um, but having observed that in other people, I knew that it was, um, you know, some of the stuff is just overtly silly. Like Carmen, I don't think Carmen would be offended by saying some of his music silly. You know, right. it's by intention, but silly doesn't necessarily um, remove serious. <laughs> right. And and so um, I think that 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 combination and also that it's entertaining and it it's a part of popular culture has masked its um, importance, even and especially in scholarly circles. Um, so I don't know. Um, yeah. That, yeah. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> Answer. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, okay, so I want to touch back to the the rock that doesn't roll. 
because I've been listening to all the all the regular episodes plus the Patreon specials. Um, oh, thank you. There are dozens of podcasts about Christian rock that are mostly nostalgic. It's either um, we're going to go over favorite albums and see if they still hold up or if they're okay, kind of cheesy now or cringe, or um, we're going to go back and talk about, you know, favorite shows we saw or whatever, a lot of those. And and one of the things you pointed out is that whole uh, maybe tooth nail on era of Christian rock was mostly dudes. And yeah. Um, oh, yeah. most of these podcasts are just a couple dudes. Um, yeah. But yours isn't like that. Your show with Andrew is, I, I guess I would describe it like a tour guide for the rest of the world to help them understand what this niche music scene was all about. It's almost like a um, nature channel documentary about this like strange, <laughs> strange tribe that like nobody knows about or something. Um, what, what's that been like? How did that come about? And, and what's the, what's oh, the podcast wow. process been like? Well, I have to first say that my podcast co-host um, producer, Andrew Gill is, I have learned so much from him. He's, he's an excellent journalist and storyteller and, you know, historians are not trained to communicate in podcast format. Um, so he's been so patient with me and really open. And and Andrew um, says this in the in the podcast. He was raised in the the world of contemporary Christian music, and I think in other hands, um, it could have just been a, a dude conversation, as as you say. <laughs> um, but he's been really open and and intentional about um, engaging in a really thoughtful way with, with the music. So we met each other. He, he had been kind of working on this idea for a podcast. We met each other. We had a great time um, talking about the possibility of doing something like this. And then the John Templeton foundation funded um, a series of PRX podcasts that would explore. It's called the big questions project. So big questions about our world. And the question that we wanted to tackle was what was the effect of contemporary Christian music on the lives of fans? And so it's been a real learning process because, um, you know, I, it, sometimes we, we've talked through some of our older episodes and laughed a little bit like, well, we had no idea, <laughs> you know, kind of what we were doing, but we wanted to make sure that we told stories that, that centered the fan experience of it and then gave context to that fans experience. So um, one episode you brought up um, tooth and nail stuff. One episode we talked with DL Mayfield, who talked about just the, the kind of life transforming experience of having grown up in a very sequestered evangelical media bubble with you know um, focus on the family type stuff, and then hearing Green Day for the first time, and it just completely blowing DL Mayfield's mind. Um, and so we wanted to. I got such a kick out of hearing about that experience. And so we wanted to give a soundscape to a company that, you know, what it's like to be. So I have to credit um, the the whole production crew. I'm probably the least responsible for the, if, if you enjoy that experience, I'm probably the person who's least responsible for that. I knew DL Mayfield. So uh, it was my idea to, to have that conversation. But other than that, I played a very small role. Um, and uh, we've had such a good time along the way. We've tried to talk to, we've talked to people who are still 
very involved in evangelical um, conversations and in that world. We've talked to people who um, are have completely disavowed um, that world, and so we and we tried to kind of have a, a range of conversations so that no matter if you were raised in that world, no matter what your position is now, that you will um, see someone who represent or hear someone, I guess, who represents, um, your experience with that world. Um, and it's just been super fun. I feel it's a real privilege because I think one of the things that I didn't realize because I wasn't raised with that really strong emotional connection and spiritual connection with, with contemporary Christian music, I didn't realize how many very poignant stories I was about to hear, um, when I first started. And, I feel a responsibility to um, listen, and and it's a real joy. Well, that that actually leads right into the next thing I was going to say. As soon as you mentioned last year you were writing this book, I pre-ordered it at Oxford University Press. But that wasn't the first time I'd heard of you. Oh, I I remembered your survey a couple years back, asking for folks' stories, and responded to that, and then immediately like tried to spread that through all the people I knew that would have stories to tell, specifically because I wanted to say, I want the people that liked Daniel Amos or the choir or the 77s or like all the stuff that John Thompson was into. Like I want those people to have their stories heard too and not just Jackie Velasquez, Stacey Rico, you know, um, all the like boy band and worship stuff. So um, how many responses did you think you would get to that survey? And how many did you actually get? What what has that whole process been like? Oh my goodness. I have I have to tell you, I was hoping for about 50 because the reason why I did it, and and this is, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but um when you include data in a in a scholarly work, you have to um there are procedures for doing it. So I got, you know, clearance for, I'm going to do it in this way. And what I really wanted was just anecdotes. You know, I I was hoping that I would get a couple of quotes to put here and there, because um, I mentioned in the book, a lot of approaches to contemporary Christian music histories are artist centric, but I wanted to center the market, you know, like what what was happening with how were people receiving um, what was being done? Because any artist can tell you that there's often a huge gap between what they intend and then, you know, how people receive it. So, um, so I wanted to center that. So I thought, you know, I'll be lucky if I get 50 and I got over 1200, I was completely overwhelmed. I had to change up a lot of how I was even going through the data and not all of it, a lot of it didn't end up in the book. Um, so I've created a sub stack. And after the the book is out, I plan on releasing um, data every now and then. For example, I asked, you know, who were who is your favorite artist? Who is your least favorite artist? And now I have 1,200 responses. Um, and so I want to, you know, share that that information. But I, I was completely overwhelmed. And it was a, it was sort of like, um, you know, they joke, like when a dog catches a car, what are they going to do with it? I'd hoped for all of this stuff. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, what do I do? So that part has been really fun. It's It's been the best problem. So thank you so, 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 so much for helping spread the word. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, 
I mentioned that you really dig deep and cite your sources. How long did you spend like reading old copies of CCM and listening to old albums and interviewing folks? Because I mean, the history is rich. I mean, you can tell this is written by someone who's a historian, the way you've structured the book. And but like, what, what was that process like? Oh, thank you so much. Um, Well, I tried to um, almost like be a method actor um, uh, through the process. And by that, I mean, um, I, there are lots of different kinds of music that constitute contemporary Christian music. So I tried to immerse myself in the soundscape of whatever genre I was covering. So um, something that doesn't get talked about in a lot of podcasts about contemporary Christian music is there were a lot of Southern gospel um, artists that were regular charters on CCM. And then a lot of music that would be classified as inspirational music. So Steve Green, Sandy Patty, that kind of music comes out of the Southern gospel um, networks. Uh, So there would be times where I would just listen. It'd be like, okay, this is a week where I listen to nothing but this, you know, this music. And I really tried to, to feel the emotions of the, you know, the music, like, what is it that I'm supposed to be experiencing here? Um, I watched hours and hours of, um, of footage of, um, of music, um, and I, you know, I subjected my family to it. I re- I really enjoyed the Jesus music stuff. That was fun. And my kids really love um, Larry Norman um, in particular. So we we would rock out to that. Um, it, there were times some, you know, I, I'm not a music critic, but I like some forms of music more than others. So there were times where I had more fun than others. Um, but then I also tried to, I, I appreciate you mentioning, I tried to, to re- immerse myself in the media landscape more, more broadly. So I listened to an audio book and this was like a a really transformative experience of how Lindsay's late great planet earth, because hearing it is a really different experience than reading it. It was this kind of, when I, when I heard it, I was like, this is kind of psychedelic, you know, like I could actually really feel like what I, I thought that I could feel a lot more connections than I was expecting to, to the kind of Timothy Leary, um, like psychedelic scene. And I, yeah. and I thought, Ooh, I can really feel like hearing it was different. I could feel how it really struck a chord with, with Jesus people, because a lot of times you're like, the immediacy what? and the urgency and the yeah. other worldliness of it. Yeah. yeah. And and there's this point where he does, he, he actually kind of reminded me of L. Ron Hubbard, um, his Dianetics, which is the guy who founded Scientology. And he wrote this book called Dianetics, which I'd read in graduate school as part of a class on new religious movements. And Dianetics does this thing where he, L. Ron Hubbard starts talking about all these philosophers. And he gets a lot of them wrong, by the way, he doesn't totally understand like Rousseau and Kant. I can't remember who he talks about. But um, but he, it's this very sweeping kind of cosmic rendition of the world. And, and late great planet earth is very similar to that. Like, it's got this feeling like, I'm going to tell you about this. And like, you know, astrology agrees with me and all these kinds of, it's just fascinating. So um, I tried to do that. I reread this present darkness, which I had read as a kid because any Pentecostal kid knows about of course, like, yeah. this present darkness. I had an opportunity to interview him um, and that so I tried to really um, 
you know, immerse myself in that. And then, you know, hearing from fans and people in the industry. And then I bought every existing copy of um, CCM magazine from 1978 to 2001. Um, The people at the Gospel Music Association were so kind to help me with that. So my office is just like full and my house is full of (laughs) contemporary Christian music magazine. So I was really interested in you know, who, who's buying ads in this magazine? Cause that tells you a lot about who they think they're targeting. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, there were ads celebrating the presidency of Ronald Reagan, for example, um, lots of ads from, um, compassion, international world vision. You probably, I don't know. Did you have CCM magazine when you oh, were, yeah. That, oh but, yeah, but also heaven's metal and the harvest rock syndicate and Noteboard and cutting edge. And like, I, I wanted all the alternative stuff, but absolutely. I remember even subscribing to Campus Life just because they did music reviews. Um, so yes, I was I was the one to read it all. And and awesome. to your earlier point, I had the income at the time to be able to do that. And so I was a, you know, I wanted to to know everything about everything in Christian music. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I I loved, especially when I was doing stuff on um, Striper and some of the other like subsequent metal bands. I read a lot of Heaven's Metal, which was super fun. I, I it's fun, you know, as you know, because thank you so much for reading the book so carefully. I can tell you really did. Um, but uh, one of the things that I am trying to trace is why some some bands and some artists really connected with the general CCM market and others didn't. And so CCM magazine is really, I think the record of the, of, um, of that conversation about who's going to sell and who's not. Um, some of the artists that the editors of contemporary Christian music magazine thought readers should know about did not chart well, you know, no. so they would be music like, you know, like the 77s that anybody who, is big into um, like critically acclaimed rock <laughs> um, and also like it has heard of Christian music, loves the 77s. Um, but, you know, I was interested in why did the 77s not um, have a prominent place in contemporary Christian music, but Petra did, you know? Yeah. And, and so the, some of the, the periodicals like, um, like that, that they're sort of the record of a, of the minority report. (laughs) If you've seen that movie, like, you know, um, and, and that is fascinating to me too. Like there's this whole, you know, group of people who are really into the music and not necessarily into the mainstream of contemporary Christian music for ideological. And then sometimes artistic reasons, you know, they just don't like, they're not into Petra. They want to listen to to the 77s. Also, it could be that they don't, they're not into the kind of um, broadly accepted conservatism that was um, the kind of mainstream of CCM. Yeah. You know, I, so um, you talk about the the charting. I think one thing I, I don't know if you touched in, on in your book was the rise of SoundScan. Because oh, yeah. I remember early days, a lot of the charts were like, they'd call up the store and say, tell us your bestsellers and the music buyer would say, you know, these are my bestsellers, which might be a rough translation to these are my favorites. And SoundScan gave the raw numbers. And suddenly I remember the music industry as a world waking up and going, wait a minute, 
country music sells? Like people are buying that? Well, apparently, yeah, they were actually buying that because, mm. you know, the music buyers, like whatever, we got a section back there. But when you looked at the raw numbers of what sold, it was, and, and then suddenly stuff was charting that wasn't charting before because you could see the raw numbers. But but yeah, it was still the the gatekeepers that said what gets pushed to the stores and then the store buyers who were saying, yeah, no, I'm not putting that on display. You know, I'll buy one copy and it can go spine out and when it's gone, it's gone. Versus like, I want an end cap with 50 and a listening station and a big display and it's going to be up there for a month and a half. And like there, there was a lot of that um, curation and gatekeeper yeah. stuff going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I talk about SoundScan just a little bit in the, um, in the section on the 1990s, because it shows how um, there was sort of an imagined market, like what you say, and, and that was curated by very, I would imagine almost to a person, very devout um, Christian bookstore owners. Um, mm -hmm. I think they were, um, they took their role not just as business people, but as theological gatekeepers really seriously. And so they would, um, there are, I heard so many kind of funny stories about young people who, um, you know, were trying to convince their mom to buy whatever album um, and the mom complaining to a bookstore manager, like, you know, why do you have whatever music there, you know, like a hardcore album or something like that. Um, and what SoundScan did was reveal exactly what you said, like that there were artists that um, were being underreported, <laughs> um, that were actually very viable. Um, and in the CCM world, one of the funny ones is um, actually Carmen, um, because a lot of more traditional bookstore owners really had theological problems with his work. And, um, but people loved it yeah. <laughs> and, and kids loved it, especially like children, especially because he had, um, a lot of by donate, you know, he would give concerts and they, you could go for free or with donation. Um, but anyway, so it showed that stuff. And then it also allowed for marketers, Christian marketers to develop really sophisticated understandings of the actual customers. So it's I'm sure I'm sure you know, um, but maybe the general public doesn't know about the character of Becky. Um, so they developed this composite vision of the mothers who were the kind of core um, customers of Christian bookstores and were the the core customers of CCM in part because they were the gatekeepers of their homes. So yeah. Christian moms. Um, so then they developed like SoundScan. It's hard to um, really over oversell how important that was because it allowed for marketers to really connect with their um, with their target audience, and they developed really sophisticated ways of understanding who this person was. And and for a while, um, they we're able to really connect and the, the industry grew a ton. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned kind of going back and listening to a bunch of the music and your kids kind of getting into some, were there any gems that you realized? Oh, actually I really like this. I'm sad that I missed out on that when it was a thing or, or no. 
Absolutely. Oh yes. I, um, let me see here. Uh, I would say I, I really did enjoy listening to, um, the 77s. That was a lot of fun because I, because they were a little bit later. I think my dad would have liked the 77s too, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, he was raising kids at that time. So as someone who's also raising kids, it's hard to, it's hard to take on new things <laughs> because, you know, you're busy. Um, but so the 77s, I would say that, um, one of the singer songwriters who I just really grew to enjoy was Sarah Groves. Um, she has a song about being a mother. Um, you cannot lose my love that I sing to my kids now and they love it. It's beautiful. Um, and, um, I would say a couple other, because I came of age in the 1990s and by that time, you know, I just was not interested in Christian music at all, but, um, Reliant K, I started listening through their catalog. I was like, you know what? I think I would have liked them because they're, yeah. they're like, you know, um, I, I enjoyed their music. Uh, and then, um, Pedro the lion that yeah. has been really fun. I, you know, I just was so disconnected from that world by the time that stuff was, was out in the world. Um, so yeah, I think there's, you know, I'm not a music critic, so I feel no real, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I can say like, this is good or that is good. Uh, you like what you like. Yeah. yeah. I like what I like. So yeah. Um, and then, then I would also say that, um, I think I felt particularly the, um, the loss of how CCM was so overwhelmingly white over time, because there's incredible black gospel artists and music that just, um, even even when there were, were efforts made to um, market them to CCM, never really took hold in the market. So I think there was like a whole a whole um, a, a whole musical world that was lost. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, I've had I, a lot of fun. I remember back in the day, you could hear like BB and CC or right? Philip Bailey or you know, maybe Leon Patillo on the radio with other CCM artists, but then it, 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 it was rare and it did shift. And there was just so much like, yeah. I, I love the way you structured your book as a timeline of how the industry developed and matured over the years. Were you, were there any surprises for you or did you kind of already know what was happening? Were, were there any things where you went, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that coming or I didn't think that was going to happen. That's such a good question. Um, I think, you know, one of the earliest uh, conversations that I had about this book, and I, I talk about there are two people who were really instrumental. Um, uh, well, actually, there are four people. So I, I will say that um, in college, I, I sang with um, Derek Johnson, and who created a vocal ensemble. And I was really mentored by him and his wife vocalist Debbie Johnson, who created a vocal ensemble that actually is still um, at um, Disney World called oh, Voice Pretty. Wow. Yes, um, it's an incredible jazz arranger, and and um, Derek and Debbie introduced me to a much older song tradition than what I had um, been raised with, because having been raised in a charismatic um, praise and worship type uh, church community. I, I didn't really know a lot about the revivalist songbook tradition. 
which on a on the business side of things really set the train tracks for CCM. So um, when I first started the, this project, I interviewed um, Derek and Debbie, and it, he is such a knowledgeable person about the networks of that revivalist tradition. So I think that was a surprise. And most most contemporary Christian music histories um, start with rock, um, but I wanted to start with the business and the business starts earlier. So I think that was a surprise for me. And then um, I, after college, I worked for um, a legendary contemporary Christian music producer whose career is much broader than CCM, but um, Charlie Peacock. Um, Charlie Peacock and Andy Ashworth, who are um, curators of the art house in that world. I listened to your episode where you talk about Charlie Peacock to to prepare for this. Um, so yeah, I um, Charlie and his insights. I, I um, as part of the writing process, I had dinner with him and Andy, and I you know ran that idea past them. Like, okay, so this is what I'm thinking. I want to I want to locate it here. And he was so encouraging and gave me a lot of a lot of other insights for that. So I think that that was one of the the big aha moments um, was, you know, if if this is a business, you want to start with the people who are actually the business people, not the artists that are making the music, because the artists are in the grand scheme of the business end of things relatively disempowered. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they're, they're creating these worlds, but I mean, one of the things I appreciated about what you do is you highlight so much work from people who are not well networked in those very profitable industry circles. Um, and if you want to understand that world, you got to understand, you know, the industry end of it. So I think that was probably the biggest surprise and, and kind of, it felt like a, a key um, to unlock um, this world. You talked about how um, some of the Christian rock scene, the, the later Christian rock scene, kind of flew in the face of the overall CCM industry. And one example you gave was a contrast between Stephen Chris Chapman's Great Adventure and Five Iron Frenzy's Old West. Ah. Could you unpack that? Yeah, yes, definitely. Um the music that appealed to that was really just like right in the the crosshairs of the Beckys, you know, the the Christian music moms tended to be music that was um, that had a, a certain narrative about the United States that was influenced, I think, by um, conservative visions of the Cold War, which saw the United States as a um an outpost of divinely ordained democracy and um that comes i i trace in the book um that that comes from much older heritage so those holiness songbooks were very patriotic um but in the hands of ronald reagan who really theologized um cold war democracy by referring to the united states as a city on a hill so they they're the really popular ccm stuff did not disrupt that narrative <laughs> at yeah. all. And in fact, um, The Great Adventure is, is a perfect example of kind of the, the softer um, way of upholding that stuff because it really celebrates the, um, 
the American cowboy, which is of course iconic, iconic American um, uh, figure is, is the cowboy and compares a Christian life to um, the, this cowboy. Um, whereas Five Iron Frenzy is a direct, um, their, their song, the old West is a direct challenge to that, that narrative and is a condemnation of, um, of manifest destiny and of westward expansion. And I argue that, um, there's a reason why one was a huge seller <laughs> in contemporary Christian music and one was not, I mean, yeah. some of it is sonic too, with five iron frenzy. A lot of, I, I actually talked with, um, Leonor Ortega Till for this project. And I asked her, you know, how did you get away with this stuff? Because you're saying stuff that's very edgy it, oh, yeah. uh, then and now, you know, and she sort of laughed and said, well, I honestly, I think it's because, you know, kids were listening with their headphones. <laughs> and the grownups didn't want to hear that kind of music. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, for the moms, it was just like, oh, that's not very pleasant. I don't like it, it just the sounds were rough. Um, and they weren't, they were just kind of not paying attention to it. But if you actually, you know, a lot of people I've, I've seen, you know, people have written formal essays about this, but also just kind of on social media joking, um, but not really joking that five iron radicalized them. Um, well, yeah. yeah, so it worked. Well, I, I remember in the last couple years seeing people kind of my age, I'm 55, just turned 55 and folks saying, oh my gosh, have you read the lyrics of Rage Against the Machine? Do you understand what they believe? And it's like, what about the name Rage Against the Machine? Did you not understand? Like, yeah, it's it's been there the whole time. That's like they're raging against the machine. There's like, a machine. You know, they're raging against. If you didn't read it, then I get why you would be shocked now <laughs> sitting down to actually read the lyrics. But um, yeah, I think if you sat down and read some of these, you'd go... Yeah, they they're they're serious about you know some some big issues, and they weren't afraid to to tackle them. I mean, I know. So the the joke was, um, especially in the metal scene, but in Christian music in general, like every artist had to have their anti-abortion song. You had to have your anti-suicide song. You had to have your no premarital sex song. You had to have your um, you know don't do drugs song. Um, and then you might have, like, later on when you get into the God's Not Dead, you're going to have the whole, like, everybody is going to persecute me and I'm going to be a, you know, champion type song. Um, but but there were folks who just said, like, those aren't my agendas necessarily, and I'm going to tackle other issues. Yeah, yeah. And those ones were, they did find audiences um, oftentimes. So groups like Five Iron Frenzy, um, MXPX, um, and just a whole, a lot of folks who are on the, um, tooth and nail roster or also five minute walk and many of the other, um, uh, smaller indie labels in the 1990s and the early two thousands, they were able to find audiences for sure, but they were, um, usually not able to crack the, the yeah. bookstore market in a significant way. There are always exceptions, but um, in terms of developing um, the the kind of market presence that you would need to to um, to move that direction, 
the music was either ideologically or sonically to outside the the mainstream for them to sell. And so then you get people um, like Stephen Curtis Chapman, who um, is is ideal for car listening music. You know, yeah. it's it's very easy on the ears and hooky songs and um, makes, makes you feel good. Yes. And by all accounts, the nicest person, you know, yeah. just like this is somebody who um, if you're a concerned mom and, you know, I I now am a mom who's driving my kids to school and we listen to music on the way. And I, I actually I, maybe that's one of the bigger surprises for me is really coming to feel a, a kind of empathy toward the parents who had been um impressed that, that there had been impressed upon them by various media sources their role as the protector of their children and their responsibility for their children's well-being um and so i think of course you would worry about that stuff um yeah well yeah well, and i remember the the narrative being like the stakes are really high it's not just yes. your kids walk but like America, Western culture, democracy is at risk. And like, if your kids slip away, like that, that's the end. And so focus on the family, Bill Gothard, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't think anybody told those parents, here's the agenda, stick to the script. I think it was just like, you live in those waters. You hear that on the radio all the time. Um, of course, that's just going to be like how like it's going to come out in in the choices you make and the fears you have and yeah yeah. Um, oh, I was just going to say so in the book you talk from the early early days of like you know printing sheet music for the holiness songs and through the the early labels into like the major label acquisitions and the demise of independent music stores at all, much less. Christian bookstores and then the collapse of the Christian music industry with um, bookstores specifically. And then even radio, like it, it became so homogenized and even Salem positioning less of their stuff on music and more on just like conservative talk radio. I mean, it, you take it all the way through to like the insurrection and the Asbury revival after that. But what's, what's next? I mean, I don't mean like predict, but like, do you, do you have, any hopeful thoughts for the Christian music scene, not necessarily the industry, but. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I talk about in, in the, um, the book is that the formal, the, the, I consider contemporary Christian music as a, as a, an industry. It was, um, the development networks and the the institutional forms of evangelicalism that supported it are without a doubt in decline. Um, but that doesn't mean that Christians aren't making music. In fact, the, the very technological inventions that undermined CCM. So a lot of contemporary Christian music depended on parents capacity to censor their children's music and the yeah. internet, of course, just, destroyed that. Um, and so, but the internet also facilitated 
um, the, the capacity for artists to find audiences. So there are plenty of artists um, who are out there in the world um, creating music, finding sustainable audiences. They don't, they're not in bookstores, but they are out there. Somebody I cover, um, Sam Rivera, who's actually in the Portland area, um, had, uh, has, has like over a hundred thousand followers on social media is collaborating with pretty well known artists completely outside the, the networks that created contemporary Christian music. He's a devout Christian. He's creating art that's compelling, um, for people. So there is no doubt in my mind that flourishing artistic communities still exist the the heady days of making you know almost a billion dollars um at least in the contemporary christian music side of things i think that that is probably unlikely to return anytime soon mm-hmm. um because it because it really relied on the cultural racial ethnic social economic uniformity that existed in the late 1990s and early 2000s and that just doesn't exist anymore uh, for a umpteen reasons. Um, but I mean, your work shows that there are artists who are out there connecting with audiences and that there are, there's an audience that is willing to support that in unconventional ways. So I have a lot of hope. Do you? I do. So I, I want to put a bug in your ear about somebody else in Portland, not an artist, Okay. But he's a uh, a massive champion and, and supporter of artists. His, it's Drew Schaefer, um, and he works with the, it used to be the Listen to This podcast, but now it's part of the One Big Family. So Stephen Lovkin that goes by the, uh, Lufkin that goes by the name Lovkin, um, they partnered together for this One Big Family thing. And it's uh, an international kind of a collective of indie artists who cool. I think almost all of them like are young enough that they never grew up going to a bookstore to buy music, probably don't go to any store to buy music, um, but have been passionate about, I want to write songs about my faith and what's going on in my life. And they're just doing it. There are no gatekeepers. There are no rules. There's no instructions. And now they're collaborating together and working with each other and kind of just putting this music out there. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the band Rivers and Robots from the UK. Um, Jonathan Ogden, uh, he's got a Discord server with a lot of folks around the world, like all collaborating and working on each other's projects and same sort of thing. Um, I think that um, it, for me, and maybe this is just me being kind of naive, but it, it reminds me of the innocence of the early Jesus music era before the labels kind of took over and had an agenda, had an agenda where people were just like, I just want to share the good news. I'm going to you know, go to a camp or a school like parking lot and throw a concert and sing some songs and, um, I, I find it exciting. I I liked the heady days of the 90s. I, I was a, a music buyer during that time. And I remember like DC Talk Jesus Freak, Audio Adrenaline Bloom, you know, Newsboys Take Me Their Leader. I mean, those were massive sellers. And even the, you know, the later boy band, girl, you know, girl crowd kind of stuff was, was big as well. But this to me just feels so more uh, organic and genuine and... Um, I don't know, exciting. So yeah, I'm all about how do we help keep that going. Um, so yeah, I love I love 
what you do because um, I think that there's a, you know, Christians art historically relied on, especially Christian art relied on patrons and in other eras, it would have been, you know, rich Lord or lady is endowing things, but, you know, we live in the wealthiest country in the world and we all can be patrons of the arts. And I think that there's a, you know, I, I teach um, church history courses and I ask my students to consider, um, you know, prior to the reformation era, um, the early modern era, the vast majority of um, Christians were not reading the Bible uh, they were experiencing Christian liturgy, Christian art, um, and preaching and song. And so I think that, you know, I, I like the idea, you know, as a, as a seminary professor, this seems like a good idea to me to support these artists and, um, and to, to help, you know, be those patrons. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love it. And I love knowing that there are these young communities out there just, doing work doing their own thing yeah like no no machine no industry just like they sprung up and they're like do do people do this do they just like write music about jesus i guess i'm gonna do that it's like wow okay that's cool and they're finding their people that's 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 the one thing you know there's a lot of doom and gloom about what the internet is doing to our society (laughs) um and some of that is very warranted but one benefit is that these groups and especially you know groups that would not be would not find an audience in the traditional bookstore networks because they they just wouldn't bookstore owners or or their communities wouldn't get them um they're able to find their people that way it's really exciting yeah so i'm going to encourage anybody if they hadn't already pre-ordered your book to order it because i i found it a a really great read and i'm excited about it um and then as far as um like what's coming up with the podcast do you have a a season two kind of already in the works is there more coming from that yes we actually just had a production meeting yesterday so we are we are hard at work on season two um i believe that will be season two will be coming out sometime in april um and we'll we'll have another set of episodes every other week and um we're we're just having a great time. I think production meetings are very fun. We were laughing a lot yesterday. So, um we're we're excited about what we'll be bringing in the future. Thank very you so cool. much. Very cool. So, um I'm going to thank you for your time and I'm going to say this has been great talking to you and that'll probably be the end of what I have for the recording, but Wonderful. Um, off the record, I want to ask, so if you weren't already excited and intrigued by the book before that, hopefully that locked it in for you. Check with your local bookseller to see if you can pre-order it from them. If not, I put the link to Oxford University Press in the show notes. This releases Thursday, February 1st. And stick around because I have a few updates for you right after this quick break. Hey, this is Ross King, singer-songwriter and longtime friend of UTR. I've got a special offer for all you songwriters out there. 
Last fall, I released a new songwriting instruction course called Tools Not Rules. It's a six-part, three-hour video series filled with tools, methods, and systems I use every single day as I write not only my own songs, but songs that are recorded by other artists and also songs that are used in film, TV, and advertising. And I'd love for you to have this course. So for a limited time, I'll be giving a 25% discount to my UTR friends. Just go to rosskingmusic.com slash UTR25 to find out more. That's rosskingmusic.com slash UTR25. Thanks. Votes are in from our UTR critics panel. And in just the last month, we revealed UTR's official top 11 gourmet albums of Yep, Need to Breathe, Dave Barnes, and Mike Means in the Branches were all voted in by our critics panel. But who else made the top 11 gourmet albums list? You can read the full list at our website, utrmedia.org, or you can listen to the audio countdown on episode 96 of the Gourmet Music Podcast. In the Portland area, Dr. Payne will be having a book release party on Thursday, February 22nd, 5.30 p.m. at Portland Seminary. There's a link in the show notes if you want to RSVP to attend the event. And there's a current campaign for a new studio album by The Call, featuring vocals by the late Michael Bean, as well as a remaster reissue of two other albums of theirs. I put a link in the show notes for that, too, along with a link to a podcast interview that Dave Lohman did with Dan Russell about the campaign on the Legacy podcast. You're going to want to check that out. I'll cover it in a February episode of the podcast, but I just wanted to give you an early heads up about it since you're already here and listening. As always, if you want to reach out, you can message me on Instagram at goodpatronpodcast or via email, goodpatronpodcast at gmail.com. I am excited to keep digging into the topic of how to be a good patron, and I hope I encourage you in your journey from fan to patron. Until next episode, remember, great music doesn't just happen, so get involved. I know I say it at the end of every episode, but I want you to know this isn't just the credits at the end. I really mean this. Good Patron Podcast is proud to be a part of UTR Media. They are an independent, listener-supported, nonprofit ministry in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can find them online at utrmedia.org. <laughs>